Right, well, as we continue today with our study of the book of 1 Samuel, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 12, and 1 Samuel chapter 12 calls us to do something, which is to open our Bible and to flip back a couple of pages to 1 Samuel chapter 8, because you can't understand 12 without remembering what happened in 8. And so let me tell you what happened back then. What happened is that the people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, came to the Lord their God, who was their stated king. They're recognized king. All the nations could say, well, our king is king so-and-so. Israel would say, the Lord our God, Yahweh, is our king. They came to their king who would occasionally raise up a judge and deliver them through the judge, not a king, from their enemies. They came to their king in chapter 8 and said, hey, you know what? We've been thinking this through, and um, we think we want a human king. And I want you to understand that that offense was, and and please hear this language because it comes straight out of God's Word today, a great wickedness. Now, be honest. When was the last time that you said anything was greatly wicked? Like ever? I'm going to use some language that sounds archaic to our culture today. It's going to happen a couple of different times, and I want you to consider that. I don't want you to be off-put by it. I don't want you to go, oh, that's ridiculous. If you think that, I want you to work that through. What these guys did was greatly wicked. Now, the problem that we have in 21st century is that the only greatly wicked thing that yet exists in our culture is to say that something is greatly wicked. Rejecting the Lord their God as king and claiming some other king was a greatly wicked move on their part. And here's why, because they were the people of God, just like we are today. And what have we been learning all the way through this series? We've been learning that, hey, you know what? As God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, then, now them, us, A, we have a king, B, his name is Jesus, C, he calls us to live for him, and D, when we do live for him, when our lives are marked by the supernatural activity of his spirit, when our lives are formed and shaped and informed because we are in his supernatural word, okay, here's what happens. In ever-increasing fashion, it happens. Our lives become more and more and more unlike the lives of those who do not live for Jesus. And that's the issue. That was the issue back in chapter 8 of their story. It's the issue in whatever chapter that you and I are in, in our story. The issue that we're looking at, that we're dealing with, is this issue of live for the king or not live for the king. Because as you recall, back in chapter 8, they came to God, their king, and they said, look, here's the deal. We want a human king, and here's the reason why we want to be free from having to be different. We don't want to live for you. We want to live for everything or everyone else. We want to be free to live like everyone else. So chapter 8, they ask for a human king. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, they get their human king. His name is Saul. Chapter 12, which is where we're at today, they gather together at a place called Gilgal. All of Israel is there, and they are going to claim their human king, whose name is Saul. And Samuel, the last judge, who's clearly been rejected, and the great prophet of Israel, the one whom we're told in the text... The Lord did not let any of the words of Samuel fall to the ground all the days of his life, meaning that when he spoke for God, he spoke infallibly. It never failed to come to pass when he made an utterance for the Lord. Okay, well, Samuel is going to proceed over the uh, proceedings. He's going to preside over it. 
And he's going to let them have their king, but not until he first preaches the gospel to them. The gospel to them really is in many ways his last word to the nation. And here's why, because the gospel is the cure. It is the cure for our great wickedness. It is the cure for the great emptiness that is ours when we forsake the king and begin to worship and serve other things. And it is the cure as well for our own heart's unwillingness to live for Christ. We need to consider together all of the great things that our God has done for us in Jesus. So we pick up our story today in 1 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. It says, And Samuel said to all Israel, so they're all there, he says, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, he's pointing at Saul. Behold, he says, the king that you asked for walks before you. And you remember what Saul looks like, don't you? He's easy to see. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's the most handsome guy in the entire nation. He's young, he's strong, he's powerful. He's the man, Saul, or at least, well, he seems to be. And he's right at the very cusp now, the beginning of his governance over the nation of Israel. But what about Samuel? Well, Samuel's clearly comparing himself to Saul here because he says, behold, take a look at him. He's saying, look at your king. There he is. And he walks before you, all young and tall and handsome and strong. And he says, and I am old and gray. I'm not tall. I'm not handsome, not strong. And my leadership has come to an end. He says, behold, I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I too have walked before you from my youth until this day. And now notice what he does. It's brilliant. He swears them all in, puts them all up in a witness box in a courtroom, and says, now you're going to give some testimony. I'm going to take testimony from you. He says, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before His anointed, meaning, you know, this king that you wickedly demanded. And let me ask you, Samuel says, whose ox have I, keyword taken? Or whose donkey have I, again, taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Meaning, whom have I taken something from in return for, well, some kind of a favor? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken, there it is again, a bribe to blind my eyes with. Testify against me, he challenges them, and I will restore it to you. He's saying, come on, bring it on. Talk amongst yourselves. Take your time. I got nothing to say. I got nowhere to go. What have I done? What have I taken? And what is he doing? He's calling us back to that chapter 8. Because back in chapter 8, he said, oh, oh, you guys want a king, right? Okay, well, let me tell you infallibly prophetically, what you're going to get in your king. You're going to get a king who's going to take from you. That was the key word. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your land. He will take your livestock. He will take your cattle. He will take your male servants and your female servants. He will take and capture and enslave and oppress you. Guaranteed. For none of my words fall to the ground. So saith the Lord. He's calling them to remember that speech, what they've signed up for. And now he's saying, listen, I have lived before you since I was a boy. You know my story. You've seen my deal. You know my leadership. You understand my integrity. Okay, let me just ask you a quick question. What exactly have I taken from you? Go ahead, anybody. 
And they said, and it's the universal report, they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And Samuel says to them, the Lord is what? Witness for you? Oh, no. The Lord is witness against you. And his anointed, this king of yours, is witness against you this day as well, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they all said in unison, he is witness. And so then what have they just admitted? They've just admitted that having a judge rule over them was far better than what they've signed up for and have been prophetically and infallibly promised to receive through, well, their human king. So they didn't ask for a king as a result of some kind of deficiency in the governance of a judge. Samuel says, what have I taken from you as your judge? And they said, you've taken nothing. And he says, good. The Lord is witness against you and has anointed this king of yours as witness against you this day as well, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they all said in unison, he is witness. And Samuel says, great, thank you, but don't go anywhere because I'm not done yet. Verse 7, he says, now therefore stand still that I may now plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And then if you've done your personal worship, you know what he does next. He rewinds the tape on their history, and he goes all the way back to Egypt where they were enslaved for 430 plus years to one of the most powerful leaders in the whole world, Pharaoh, and how God, he begins to replay, alone delivered them miraculously, miracle upon miracle, deliverance upon deliverance. He just walks them forward from Egypt all the way to the present day, even until his own deliverance that God brought through him. His point being, hey, there's no deficiency in the kingship of God either. And incidentally, go find a human king who can do for you all of that. So they didn't choose a human king because God as their king had let them down somehow was unfaithful to them somehow, was lacking in power or something like that. There's no deficiency in the Lord. And he's forcing them to acknowledge that. Look, they're just rejecting God because they don't want to live for him anymore. They don't want to be different. They want to live like everyone else. And so then Samuel brings his indictment of them, and by extension, all the rest of us, who from time to time, or maybe a lot, reject the Lord our God as king because, honestly, we don't want to be different. We don't want to live for Him. We want to live like everyone else. Okay, he brings that indictment of us then to a close, beginning in verse 16, where he says this. He says, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will now do before your eyes. So he's going to call forth a miracle here. He says, is it not the wheat harvest today? Now that doesn't mean anything to us in Fort Lauderdale and most of us aren't farmers. The point of that is that over there, there is this whole season of time when it doesn't rain. Rain is like an aberration during that particular season. And if it does, it's not going to rain like this. He's saying to these guys, you know that this is the time of year when it never rains, don't you? And they're all like, well, yeah. And he's like, yeah, and it's a pretty sweet looking day today too, isn't it? I mean, you've got the SPF going, you know, at least 15. I mean, the sun is out. There's not a cloud in the sky. Would you agree with all of that? They're like, well, yeah. And he said, okay, well, that's good because I will now call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. So it's not going to be a drizzle. There's not going to be a little moisture. Oh, I think I just felt a drop. No, no, no. It's going to wash you away. 
I will now call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain to authenticate what I'm saying is the idea. And you shall then know and see that your what? Wickedness is, are you kidding, Tom? Great. You shall then know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord. And how could it be otherwise since he's everywhere? And here's the wickedness in asking for yourselves, a king, the idea then being so that you can, you know, really just live like everyone else. And the point is we're not supposed to live like everyone else. And we don't when we're following Christ our King. And so Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people got the message, you see, and they greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble, aren't we? Pray for your servants to the Lord who's God, your God, that we may not die. Our great wickedness is worthy of death. This is really archaic, isn't it? It's crazy. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king so that we could then live like everyone else. What is Samuel doing? He's preaching the gospel to these guys. He puts them on trial. He puts us on trial. And he says, hey, here's the first thing I need you to deal with here. Here's where the gospel begins. It begins with an understanding that you and I, they and us, have all of us committed sins against God, okay? That are not the functional equivalent of a parking ticket. That are not the functional equivalent of a traffic citation. Oh, you were doing 55 and a 35? You know, it's going to cost you $250. Ouch, but, you know, not that big a deal. It's not a misdemeanor, and now you've got to get a lawyer and you have to show up in court, and it's terrifically inconvenient, you know, and it's kind of expensive and the whole deal. But if you've got a clean record, you're going to be okay in the end, and it's not really going to matter in the long run. No, 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 no. It's a great wickedness. Worthy, he's saying, of eternal death. Worthy of, I'm going to use the H word. Think about the H word for a minute. Worthy of hell. My goodness. That sounds utterly ridiculous today, doesn't it? I think that might be the most offensive word of all the words, and you can put letters in front of a number of them, can't you? Seriously, I mean, if you think about that word for a minute, at least as it's been presented now, as in we are greatly wicked, all of us have committed this, and we're, frankly, worthy of hell. It's not like it's hot as hell outside. That's not the way I'm using it. It's really something. And our friends come to us, and our culture comes to us, and our family comes to us and says, you know what, that is utterly ridiculous. And I want to interact with that just for a second. Like, on what basis is that utterly ridiculous? On the basis that it's uncomfortable? Because it is. And if you think it's uncomfortable where you're sitting, you know, climb up on here. It gets warmer. So it's uncomfortable, therefore it's not true. That work? 
All right, nobody believes it anymore, mostly because it's uncomfortable. But no, really, I mean, like, nobody believes it anymore, therefore it's not true. So is that the way that it works then with truth, too? Do we take a vote on hell every year? So hell's up for a vote again this year. And uh, it, it passed last year, so it was still true for us last year, but by 243 votes. But this year, you know, kind of the pre-voting polls are indicating that hell's going to not be true anymore, and we're just going to take this vote. And th- is that the way that it works? How do you make that claim? God is coming to us in His Word, and I understand that there's a conversation to be had there too. But He's coming to us in His Word, and He's saying, look, let me tell you about the realities of sin and of death, of heaven and of hell. He's not done with the message, praise the Lord, okay? Far from it, in fact. But He thunders forth from heaven. He miraculously brings forth the rain, and then He puts this story in His Word so that we can get the message. It says, and all of the people that were there on that day got the message, they freaked out, and they said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. They get it. For we have added to all our sins this evil, right language, to ask for ourselves a king so that we could live just like everyone else. And Samuel said to the people, and this too is the gospel, it's my favorite part. He says, do not be afraid. Well, that's good. Do not be afraid. He says, yes, you have done all of this evil. He's not denying the reality of it. But he's saying there is cause to not be afraid. But rather to press on. And I love that too, you know, because we blow it big in life. These guys committed a great wickedness, so saith the Lord, and you know what, we have too. But we all of us deal with our various degrees of great wickedness, do we not? And we feel disabled by them. This gospel message is coming forth and saying, look, and there is one in whom you do not have to be afraid and through whom you can leave that behind and be productive for your king and for his kingdom. He says, do not be afraid. Yes, you've done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, you see? But what? Serve the Lord with all your heart. And so much of what I want you to see this morning is that that is the native response. That is the natural desire. It is the want to of a heart that has truly reckoned with the reality that Christ has taken our hell and given us His heaven. That Christ has laid down, having lived an infinitely perfect and righteous life in our place, He then laid it down as full satisfaction, as a full covering for our great, great wickedness. When we are being transformed by that, what we discover is that we've got a heart that actually wants to live for the King wants to serve Him because we have been forgiven and made clean. And not just clean, but full. Because listen to what Samuel says next, verse 22, or 21. He says, "...and do not turn aside," meaning from following Christ your King, in order to chase after what? Because he uses the word twice. Empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. There's Jesus and fullness, and then there's everything else and empty. And the psalmist in Psalm 115 agrees. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 2. He said, why should the nation say, where is their God? And at least in some sense, 
I mean, you can understand why they would ask that, because if you came to the various nations way back then and you said, where is your God? They would say, well, our our God is right over here, actually. Just come on in this temple. We'll show you our God. You see the statue of our God. Here's our God. Introduce yourself, shake his hand, you know, whatever. If you said that to the Israelites, they had an invisible God. They couldn't answer that question in that sense, but they give an answer here. The psalmist says, why should the nation say, where is their God? I'll answer the question, he says. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that we and our friends and our culture think that he should do because that's the way that it works with an all-sovereign God and king. It's not the way it works. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, hey, you know what, where are you going? Because I'm thinking, I'd like to follow you. He comes to us and says, listen, there is a path of life. There is a path to fullness. And I know the path. (laughs) In fact, I am the way. And here is my incredibly gracious offer. Follow me and experience life and fullness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases, but they're idols. So now he contrasts everything else that we would worship. He says their idols are made of silver and gold, or maybe in our case, they're actually silver and gold. The work of human hands is the idea, and as a result, they have mouths, but they do not speak. You're like, yeah, but I need a word from my God. Well, you know, I want to have a seed. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see, so they don't see you. They have ears, but they do not hear your cries for help or your cries of praise. They have noses, but they do not smell. So he's painting the picture of a, a little God, if you will, that is completely insensible. He has no understanding of what's happening around him or what's happening around you. Noses, but they do not smell, he says. They have hands, but they do not feel, much less help. Feet, but they do not walk, so they can't come to your aid. And they do not make a sound in their throat. They can't even grunt. And then as if that's not enough, notice what he says next. He says, those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. He's saying that you become what you worship, and if what you worship is empty, then you become empty. And though you have a mouth, just like your little God that has a mouth, not a lot of valuable talk happening in the end. Though you have eyes, you don't see what really matters. Though you have ears, you hear nothing of the voice of the Spirit. Though you have nose, you smell nothing of the fragrance of the gospel of Jesus or of the fragrance of death apart from the gospel of Jesus. Though you have hands, the fruit of your hands will die with you and amount to nothing in the end. Though you have feet, they'll take you all over the place and nowhere that you really want to go when it's all said and done. In Jesus, we are not only made clean, we are made full. For in the person of Jesus Christ, the invisible God of heaven became visible. The intangible God of Israel became tangible. The incomprehensible God became as comprehensible as, well, as He possibly could. He came to us in the most comprehensible form. He came to us in the likeness of a man, which means that He has a mouth that speaks. Even now. He has eyes that see you. He has ears that hear you and are tuned to you. Like a father to his son or daughter. 
He has a nose. That is to say, he's completely sensible of what's going on around him and what's going on around you. He says he has hands that actually feel and help and feet that were told walk, run, and even dance over us as he rejoices over us with singing. In the person of Jesus Christ, the invisible God of heaven, came to earth. He became visible in the likeness of a man then as a man for mankind, for those who would rush to him for forgiveness. He lived, he suffered, he died, and he rose again to make us clean. And not just clean, but full, because here's the deal. When you worship him really, you become full of his love and full of his joy and full of his peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control as he fills you with his spirit and transforms you day by day by day by day by day. A walk happens step by step, doesn't it? With his word. And so Samuel says in verse 21, he says, and do not turn aside from Christ, your king, in order to chase after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And then he says this, and this too is the gospel, for the Lord will not forsake his people, and not because we don't deserve to be forsaken. I I think we covered that already, haven't we? But the Lord will not forsake His people for His own great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself, which is to say to possess you and to possess me in such a way that what happens to us reflects upon His great name. And so then for the sake of His great name, which He will not allow to be dishonored, He will never leave or forsake you. Moreover, as for me, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will continue also to instruct you in the good and in the right way. And then, and here's his conclusion, he says, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. And here's the impetus. For consider, he says, what great things He has done for you in Christ. So chapter 8, give us a human king. Chapters 9, 10, 11, they get him. His name's Saul. Good-looking guy. Chapter 12, they get together to claim Saul as their king. And Samuel says, okay, we're going to do this. And I'm going to officiate, which means that before I end my leadership and he begins his, which I've already told you guys all about, so, you know, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. Because the gospel is the cure for your great wickedness. It is the cure for your great emptiness. And it is the cure for your great unwillingness to live for the true king. So I want to close today by asking you four questions. And they kind of cascade, okay? First one is, if you recognize that you have lived in such a way as to be found guilty, not of a parking ticket, not of a traffic citation, not of a misdemeanor that you can kind of squeeze your way out of somehow, some way, but let's own it for a minute, of great wickedness. (gasps) Yeah. Not before your friends, not before our city, but before the only one who matters, really. Before the righteous judge. The one who decides before the Lord Himself. Have you recognized that you have lived in such a way as to be found guilty of great wickedness before God? Because here's what that inspires. It inspires a little bit of angst. Until you see Jesus. 
So question number two, if you then come to Jesus and humbly confess that sin and given it to the only one who can handle it, to the one who endured your hell that you might have as heaven, who laid down his perfect life, that your greatly wicked sins might be forgiven and that you might be made clean and not just clean, but full, which leads to the third question. What empty things are you turning away from Jesus in favor of? What are you chasing that isn't Him? And where is it going to lead? Because He's telling you in advance. He's like, well, you're on a road. Okay, every road has a destination. All right, let me tell you what the destination is. You can either go down the road and arrive at the destination, or I can just help you out and let you know that the destination's name is empty. That's empty. And Jesus is full. Last question. How are you gladly laying down your time, talents, and treasure in worship of and in service to your King? Because that's what the gospel engenders. That's what it inspires. That's what it produces as you and I, well, we consider the great things that He's done for us in Jesus. And He's done some great things. So to that end, I'm going to pray here in a second. Matt's going to come on up and he's going to talk about some ways to serve here at Rio if you're looking to do that. And uh, and then we're going to close um, together, okay? So let me pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank You for um, the Lord Jesus. We thank You that the invisible God is made visible, tangible, and at least to some degree comprehensible to us in Him. Lord, we thank You that He came, that He might live the perfect life that we have not, and that He might offer His infinitely valuable, infinitely righteous life in the place of greatly wicked people like us. I pray, Lord, that we might come to Him and own all of that, that we might not be afraid, but rather be full of joy, knowing that our sin is forgiven, that our heaven is secure. And God, fill us with Your Spirit. Let us marvel over the great things that You have done for us in Christ that it might produce in us a desire to stop chasing empty things and to follow our great God and King who is the Lord and to give our lives over to Him joyfully, not begrudgingly, not because we know we're supposed to. None of that. But Lord, here am I. Send and use me. And pray that you would do this for your glory and for the good of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.